and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrawal, which ended two decades of war in the country. We discuss the current state of Afghanistan and where it's headed under the Taliban rule. My guest today is Vali Nasr, Professor of International Affairs and Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, where he previously served as the dean. He also served as senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan in the Obama administration. Vali, welcome back to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. It's great to have you again. Last time we discussed U.S. and Iran, and this time we want to focus on Afghanistan. Let's start with the U.S. withdrawal itself. It was a process long in the making. Multiple presidents and administrations had been promising and trying to end the two-decade war. And finally, President Joe Biden fulfilled this promise, and we saw how the withdrawal took place last summer. What is your assessment of the timing and the way this withdrawal took place and basically ended the two-decade war? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the, the, the withdrawal was long in the coming. I think even within the time of President Obama, there was a conclusion that the war was really not winnable. The United States did put more troops on the ground uh, and it was not really able to uh, turn the tide of the war against the Taliban. And then during President Trump's period, I think the administration too came to the conclusion that either it had to put a lot more troops, much more than it uh, intended to, uh, uh, to be able to turn the tide of the war, or that uh, the Taliban were going to win you know, one village at a time. The Taliban kept expanding. And so the United States engaged in a peace process with the Taliban uh, and after that, it really stopped fighting them very aggressively. Most of the fighting uh, then onwards was done by the Afghan forces. And so the Taliban continued to gain ground. And uh, then the question became, when would the United States actually withdraw? Now, President Biden had a choice, uh, which was either to uh, do, uh, put aside the Doha agreement that President Trump had arrived at and resume the war in Afghanistan, but by that time, the United States would have needed hundreds of thousands of troops in order to uh, push the Taliban back or to just follow through with the, with the deal that President Trump had already signed. And so the United States progressed towards the exit. Now, the exit ended up being much more catastrophic and messier than was anticipated. But the, but the United States had concluded that the war was not winnable, not at least at the level of resources that the United States was willing to dedicate to Afghanistan. And I have to say that part of this had to do with other strategic shifts as well. One is that the United States, from the time of President Obama, but particularly under President Trump and now President Biden, came to the conclusion that the most important strategic thing for the United States was what was happening in Asia. And it was about China and that a war in Afghanistan really did not make sense if you were putting hundreds of billions of dollars into a war that you were not winning, that had no end in sight, and was now strategically irrelevant to the competition with China. And secondly, that essentially during President Trump's time period, the war on terror in effect finished. 
Americans stopped paying attention to terrorism. News from Syria or Afghanistan were not front page. I mean, Americans were obsessed first with President Trump himself, with domestic politics, then with COVID. And and to the extent that the war on terror and memory of 9-11 had been one reason why American presidents were under pressure not to withdraw from Afghanistan, that went away under President Trump. And he was able to sign a deal that perhaps no other American president could do, even invited the Taliban to Camp David. All of the Republicans who were gong-ho on the Afghan war and then later on criticized the withdrawal under President Biden, none of them ever said anything or questioned the Doha agreement that President Trump was signing. So this uh, you know, reduction of attention and interest in war on terror and the shift for the United States from war on terror to war on China, if you want to call it that, basically made the Afghanistan war strategically uh, something the United States had to do away with. So the question was really, how would they wind down the war? So it sounds like my understanding, and I tend to agree with you, that the time had come to leave. But let me ask you more specifically about the actual process of withdrawal. You know, the government, the local government falling essentially overnight, people um, hanging from planes and all of those images, handing over babies over barbed wire for, for U.S. forces to take to um, their parents, not really knowing what would happen to them. Do you think there was any potential format of withdrawing or winding down the war that wouldn't have been catastrophic because we obviously don't have any points of reference. This was the only way that it was done. And as a follow-up to that question, I also want to ask you if this withdrawal had happened under President Trump because that Doha process uh, had started under him, do you think it would have turned any differently? Actually, uh, watching Afghans go through this whole messy American withdrawal and what happened to them was very much for me reminiscent of 1979 Iran, uh, of a moment where people, all of a sudden, their livelihoods, their futures, their way of life is gone and, 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 and a new regime is coming and, and they leave, abandon everything and try to get out. Of, of course, Tehran was not quite as chaotic as, as Kabul was, but for many middle-class Afghans, people who were in government, people who worked with the United States, uh, you know, the way they tried to escape Afghanistan was very reminiscent of what happened uh, in Iran in 1979. You know, whenever a regime changes or a war ends like this, it's, uh, it's, there is a certain degree of, of, of hardship and mess. Uh, but I think in the case of Afghanistan, it became much more than it needed to be. Now, now wh- where would it have been natural is that, first of all, Afghanistan's economy particularly the economy that supported the middle class in Kabul, was largely a war economy. The amount of money that the Americans, Europeans, others put into the economy hiring, a, let's say, a translator. The translator you know, fed uh, you know, 10 other people. Those 10 other people went to the bazaar and they sh- bought things. It created demand for agricultural products. It demand for consumer products. The bazaars ran essentially on American money. And, and an American withdrawal would mean that they that huge amounts of money would leave Afghanistan. I'm not talking about sanctions money. I'm just talking about the fact that if you're not fighting a war, you're not going to be employing all these Afghans. 
who are not going to find comparable jobs with comparable salaries. And therefore, there was going to be a deflation of Afghan economy. The livelihood of many Afghans was going to go away. There was going to be some degree of retribution killing. In fact, some of that has ended up not being at a scale that, that, that people worried about. But I think where the I think the Americans lost the plot under the Biden administration, and this became much worse, was that first they underestimated the, uh, uh, the fact that if they withdrew their support from the Afghan army, the Afghan army was going to collapse. The Americans had built an army that was over-dependent on them. These are not like the Taliban or Hezbollah or militias in the region where they could survive on the ground. They are... they. they were built depending on highly sophisticated weaponry, on air power, on radar imagery, on satellite imagery. Their planes cannot fly without American servicemen because the service contracts were managed by, by Americans, even though the pilots may be Afghan. So, so you all of a sudden say that you, you're on your own. This army was not built to be able to function without um, American support. So, uh, and, and they were, when we, while America was there, they were fighting the Taliban. Even if they were losing, they were fighting and, 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 and suffering a lot. It's not that they didn't have the will to fight. They saw the Americans cut and run, and so they decided that this is over. Secondly, most of them hadn't been paid because of corruption in Kabul, that uh, the money that was allotted for salaries were not given. It, it reminds me of a line in Godfather when, you know, he goes to Cuba and he comes back and he decides that he's not going to build a casino there. And he says, he says that, you know, the government troops are paid to fight and, and the rebels are not paid to fight and they're winning. Uh, I mean, in the case of Afghanistan, the, the government troops were not even paid. Uh, and so at some point uh, they left and the Taliban were also very good at negotiating with tribes and getting safe passage, saying, you know, the Americans have abandoned you, but if you lay down your arms, we won't do anything to your tribes, et cetera. So the military began to collapse much faster. And then the government in Kabul proved to be particularly feckless. I mean, um, I, I think President Ghani was not the right man for that moment and the way he left Kabul uh, last, either he should have left a lot earlier or he should have stayed, actually contributed to the sense of uh, fear. And, and also we have to note that because of the way the Taliban were moving towards Kabul, the Afghans who were escaping from other cities kept going to Kabul. So Kabul was already like a pressure cooker of people who are running away from, from the Taliban. And then when the president left the way he did, they, they basically thought that the sky is falling. And, and then there was a rush to the outside. Now, the United States was at fault for not anticipating this. It was also at fault for not uh, uh, processing visas for people who could go. They were, they were at fault for not putting sufficient number of people on the ground to, to make for a much more orderly process. I mean, President Trump, because he didn't want Muslims in America, had had pretty much stopped giving visas, these so-called SIV visas, which are given to people who work for the United States, like translators, et cetera. So there was a backlog of several years of those already there. And then, you know, beyond that, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of Afghans who are at risk, who want to leave the country, uh, who need to go. And the United States hadn't thought about any of this. Like, not only about how do you get them out, where do you put them? Where are they going to go? Uh, uh, other countries did a lot better. 
than, than, than the U.S. did. So that contributed, if you would, to a massive bottleneck at the airport. I mean, in the end, the United States ended up uh, airlifting thousands of people, but a lot of it had to do with individual Americans who supported this process, individual people who put a lot of dedication into this. But it became uh, completely uh, mayhem, and that, that was not necessary. In other words, it's true that there, would, there was never going to be a peaceful handover of Kabul with a you know, 21-gun salute and exchange of flags, etc., that, that this was always a conquering army coming to the city. And there were plenty of Afghans who really didn't want to be there when the Taliban came and they wanted to get out. But mismanagement and, and lack of preparation by the United States contributed greatly to, to, to the way things unfolded. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk about the situation of the Afghans who some are still stuck, some are uh, were airlifted, but they're stuck outside the country. There are still thousands of people in U.S. bases outside the U.S. or inside the U.S., waiting for their status to be processed, and also the issue of refugees, which I want to talk about um, a little bit later in more detail. But let's talk about the economy. You mentioned this sort of withdrawal of uh, uh, circulation of money, but there's also this issue of sanctions, Mm -hmm. which has become a serious problem right now. Um, it's something that major human rights organizations, multiple um, senior officials at the United Nations have pleaded uh, for some form of uh, waiver or relief so that the country can um, have a proper functioning economy. Afghans are uh, struggling to meet everyday um, needs in their life. We're hearing very heartbreaking stories of people to the point of even selling children to make some money uh, to feed the rest of their family. Um, Talk about this dynamic. How has this strategy still continued, this issue of sanctions? And what can be achieved when the country is under Taliban rule, the war has ended, U.S. has essentially withdrew um, from that country, but it's still trying to impose some form of pressure in the in the sanctions and uh, assuming change to happen in the country. How do you assess this dynamic considering the human impacts it has on the ground? I, I think the American sanctions in Afghanistan are absolutely immoral. I mean, uh, uh, and, 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 and counterproductive. Uh, I mean, we know from sanctions on Iran, as well as our sanctions on Iraq before Iran, that sanctions target innocent civilians uh, in the hope of getting their governments, which uh, the United States admits it doesn't like and doesn't think of them as representative, to change their ways. But it's no question that it, it, it puts the pressure on average people. And the other reason for these sanctions is that... Um, is that it, 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 may, it makes for better politics in Washington. In other words, the administration does not want to be seen to be giving money to the Taliban. So uh, n- nobody criticizes it for starving the very Afghan girls that it claims is putting the sanctions to support. So it's putting sanctions so they can go to school, but in reality, it's willing to starve them in order to supposedly get him to school. But nobody criticizes the administration. 
Uh, in fact, all the criticism of the sanctions on Afghanistan is coming from civil society groups, as well as Afghans themselves, which unlike Iranians, I haven't met any Afghan, even though they might be vehemently anti-Taliban, who is not opposed to the sanctions and thinks that they, they make average Afghans uh, suffer. So uh, it's a policy right now in Afghanistan that is comfortable for the administration in Washington because they don't have to deal with the media or Republicans criticizing them for giving money to terrorists, quote-unquote terrorists, that we fought for two decades. And they all have in mind, you know, what happened to President Obama when he released Iran's frozen funds uh, in Geneva, and that uh, it's all, it, was, it was portrayed as uh, supporting terrorism, etc. So, so they don't want to do that. On the other hand, uh, it is having a devastating impact on the country. Uh, 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 you know, 90% of Afghanistan is, is, is fighting for food, is malnourished. Is, 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 the food security is a massive issue. The economy already tanked because the war ended. Now, on top of it, the United States has imported tremendous amount of, of misery on the country. So the consequence is that, yes, the first group of people who wanted to escape Afghanistan were political refugees asylum seekers, people whose lives were in danger, but increasingly we're seeing economic migrants. I mean, an average of a thousand people a day cross, illegally cross the border from Afghanistan into Iran. Similar numbers are escaping to, to Pakistan. Uh, it's devastating the economy of the country further. It's likely to, to make ta uh, Afghanistan become, again, a, a base for production of all kinds of uh, drugs and narcotics. Uh, it's going to uh, uh, make the parts of the country ungovernable because of collapse of social and political institutions, which is going to make Afghanistan more likely to become a safe haven for terrorism again. So I think Afghanistan is yet another time where we're looking at sanctions as an easy, politically convenient, expedient policy in Washington that neither achieves its political goals, and it is absolutely immoral in terms of what it does to, to the poorest of the poor in, the, in, in Afghanistan. Um, so it brings us to this question, really, that what did the U.S. achieve in the two decades of invasion and war in the country in terms of there's always this issue of the war on terror post 9-11. There was also a lot of talk about, you know, promoting good governance, rule of law, human rights, women's rights. There have been many achievements in the country, even though it seems like a lot of it is sort of rolling back with the uh, rule of Taliban. What was the achievement in your view of the past two decades from the perspective of the U.S. for its own national security and also from the perspective of the Afghan people? Well, I mean, the, the, I think the biggest thing that the United States achieved in Afghanistan was the creation of a, of a middle class that was particularly centered in Kabul. And unfortunately, its departure and then the policies that it's following is crushing that middle class. But there was a moment where American presence's greatest achievement was not in the field fighting Taliban forces, was actually in, uh, in, uh, in, in Kabul. 
But, you know, the United States went into Afghanistan to destroy al-Qaeda and to punish the Taliban for having supported it. And, and it was successful then. It decimated al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda left Afghanistan and then eventually was reduced to next to nothing and bin Laden was killed and most of their leaders were hounded and killed, right? And then uh, the Taliban were also removed from power. So that part was fine. It is only when the United States get involved in mission creep, right? Uh, uh, number one, in other words, uh, it decides that it's not, it didn't come to Afghanistan to destroy terrorism. It came to Afghanistan to build democracy and build democracy probably in one of the poorest countries in the world that had been devastated by civil war for uh, two decades already was a tall order, number one. Number two, that uh, the United States very quickly uh, was forced to shift its attention from Afghanistan to Iraq when he thought that it's going to have another easy war in Iraq and it went in there and then ended up in a quagmire and, and took its eyes off of, of, of Afghanistan. And number three, that the United States early on, in, after it defeated the Taliban, refused to find a way to integrate them back into Afghan politics the way it did eventually with Sunni insurgents in Iraq. I mean, it's a point that uh, General Petraeus sort of comes up with this idea of Sunni awakening or sons of Iraq, as they called it, which is like they gave amnesty to, to extremists who were willing to put down, Sunni extremists who were willing to put down their guns and get reintegrated back. They never offered that to the Taliban or to the Pashtun fighters. So as a result, they, they went to Pakistan, they regrouped, and they came back to fight. So, you know, there is a difference between saying that initially, uh, you know, if they had treated this as a much more limited operation, whether the outcome would have been different, that even if they had installed the Karzai government, but the fact that the United States then signed up to state building, that it didn't find a way to deal with a defeated, large defeated military, uh, and then he also got busy fighting another war altogether. There's a time period that gives the Taliban the ability to reorganize, regroup. And, and once that has happened, then you're in somewhere else altogether. Then the U.S. is playing catch up. And then, you know, it's, it, it never gets ahead of the, uh, of the uh, insurgency in Afghanistan. Uh, it, it surges troops, reduces troops, tries to fight corruption, tries to do this, tries to do that. But in the end, uh, it, it is playing, it is, it is a losing battle. And by the time of President Obama and President Trump, it comes to a conclusion. The question for President Trump was very simple, asking the generals, what does it take to win this war? And if the answer is that we need double, triple the number of troops and double, triple the number of time, the answer is no, because there's no guarantee you can do it. And I'm not going to put 300,000 troops on the ground. Then if you're not going to put 300,000 troops, you got to get out. Because if you're going to sit there with 20,000, 10,000, it's a slow death. So I think he made the decision. He's not going to surge, so he might as well negotiate with them. So we started a war, you know, crushing the Taliban. We ended up leaving Afghanistan, negotiating a deal with them and handing the country back to them. And how much of the change, you mentioned the creation of a middle class in Kabul, we saw achievements in women's rights and human rights and a new form of governance. Um, how much of that do you think is sustainable? Because a lot of these things seem to have been crumbling overnight, if not weeks, 
um, with the withdrawal of the U.S. military, which also surprised a lot of people. But again, it was expected by some. In what areas do you think there have been achievements as a result of the past two decades that can be sustainable and seen in sort of continuing into the future? Well, in the short run, there's a lot of talent in Afghanistan, which is still there. And a lot of the institutions, civil society, social, educational, government institutions are there. But in reality, you know, uh, during the time of the United States, uh, because of the youth bulge in the country, essentially you had a whole generation of people who were born after the fall of the Taliban that went to school, that got involved in a new economy, that were on internet, on social, you know, social media, etc., had a different view of life, uh, uh, etc. So that's what I mean by middle class, that had disposable income to spend on you know, consumption, et cetera. Now, the greatest threat to the middle class is the economy, end of the day. I mean, yes, it's true that uh, uh, religious restrictions and not letting women go to school, et cetera, are devastating. But in the end, even if you open the schools, if there is no economy to support the middle class, right, the middle class will begin to shrink. And, and, and then, you know, Afghanistan's politics and society goes in that direction. That's the same kind of a question about Iran, for instance, that uh, had there been a nuclear deal, Iran's, uh, a nuclear deal of 2015 had continued, Iran's middle class would be much larger now. And under maximum pressure, 10% of Iran's middle class fell under poverty belt. I mean, went on, f- fell below middle class levels, right? So uh, in the end, if People don't have jobs, they don't have disposable income, they're not able to spend uh, on on varieties of things. Uh, You know, that middle class will begin to shrivel. And then the kinds of services, economic services, social services that you associate with middle class, whether it's education, healthcare, social activities, culture, et cetera, those things also will begin to shrivel. If the number of people who might pay tickets to go to theater shrivels or disappears, then you're not going to have theater. So it's more in that sense that in the end, uh, you know, Afghanistan, the end of the war was going to put Afghanistan's economy on a downward slope. Now with the American sanctions, that, that is much steeper slope. So Afghanistan's economy is collapsing in, in large measure. And not just the poorest of the poor, but the middle class is disappearing very rapidly. And a lot of them are escaped the country as well. Um, So in that sense, let's also talk about this issue of refugees. As you mentioned, there have been tens of thousands of what essentially are political refugees, as the U.S. calls them, U.S. allies or Western allies, people who worked uh, with different government agencies, non-government agencies of the U.S. Um, and some European countries who have left. And then there's also the issue of economic refugees and the influx into neighboring countries, m- including Iran, mainly Iran. Iran has been hosting a large number of Afghan re- refugees. I believe it's been the second, uh, the host of the second largest after Pakistan for many years. And now there's a new wave of refugees crossing into the country. And the interesting dynamic here is that they're leaving an already sanctioned country and crossing into another sanctioned country who, as you're saying, is um, dealing with all these economic problems. And then also uh, a number of these refugees trying to 
essentially cross through Iran and headed into Europe, which is another issue. It's something the European countries are trying to um, prevent, and it's become a problem and a concern for Europe as well. Talk about this um, refugee problem, how it's unfolding, uh, specifically in Iran, but in general out of Afghanistan, and what the U.S. can do and the international community um, to help resolve this problem? Uh, well, the magnitude of the refugee crisis is enormous. And obviously, it is devastating for Afghanistan itself because, you know, the, first of all, the best and the brightest left Afghanistan and continue to leave. But then, uh, you know, the, the displacement of people creates a shock to the economy and society. I mean, that's uh, so, so it is a tragedy for Afghanistan. It is also a significant burden on the economies of the countries around where the refugees go, which is uh, Iran, Pakistan, and then to a, a lesser extent, Uzbekistan and, and, and Tajikistan as well. So these countries, to various degrees, um, uh, are not able to host uh, such large populations. In the case of Iran, because of the level of unemployment in the country, et cetera, it's difficult. The Iranians have... Uh, have uh, Tried, uh, ha have tried to take care of them in various ways uh, because they have a long history of Afghans in Iran. And even uh, recently, the Iranians, uh, to everybody's surprise, uh, have been vaccinating all Afghan refugees. But the, but the reality of it is that the uh, Afghan refugees had survived in Iran over the decades by basically joining the labor force at various levels. And now that's not possible because of the level of unemployment in Iran. And similarly, in Pakistan's economy is not doing very well. So they're living in a destitute life. It's not very, very, uh, very convenient for them. And at some point, uh, I think Iran and Pakistan and Uzbekistan want at least ref those refugees to go back, which means that the Afghan economy needs to stabilize. And uh, that requires the, the United States to lift sanctions and perhaps some countries to begin to give certain amount of aid to Afghanistan that would sustain enough of the economy so that people can go back to their homes, grow fruits, vegetables, you know, open shops, etc. But we're not there yet. And, and, uh, and, and so it can get worse, let's say, if Afghanistan collapses into civil war again or uh, the, the, the government in Kabul is no longer able to sustain the country, then we might even have a larger level of, of refugees leaving, uh, leaving Afghanistan, and that would be a humanitarian catastrophe. And at some point, I think even Iran has hinted at this, uh, that they're not going to be hosting this indefinitely, and they're going to actually push these refugees to move westward. And, uh, you know, and, and then that creates other kinds of problems for Europeans and Americans. And then there is the question of people that were airlifted out and have been basically are being warehoused in places other than the United States until their visas get processed. And this is largely an American problem because other countries have basically taken in those people that they uh, have lift, brought out as political refugees. Nobody knows because of the backlog of visas is so long. And the American bureaucracy on this, either deliberately or not deliberately, is 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 been horrendous in terms of processing people, and that uh, you know they may end up being in these um, in in this limbo for a significant uh, time period, which is again a, a, a tragedy. So, I mean, you think about this a country like Afghanistan, which has suffered about four decades of war of one kind of another. 
that is, again, it's people, it's economy, it's societies going through this kind of a devastation is really heartbreaking. And, uh, and, and despite the sympathy of the international community, there's not really anything being done, essentially, to, to really alleviate the problem or to stabilize it. Um, you talked about Iran. I want to also ask you about their political perspective, basically the um, government's perspective towards Afghanistan. In the past two decades, we know Iran hasn't been um, really an ally of the Taliban, but their view and the relationship with the Taliban has evolved over the years. At some point at the beginning of the U.S. invasion, Iranians in a way assisted U.S. forces against the Taliban. Um, then during the invasion, the position changed to some extent. And now um, we also saw Iran making some overtures and sort of uh, negotiations with the Taliban. How has been this evolving relationship been between the two countries over the past two decades? And where do you see Iran right now in their relations um, with the new rule of the Taliban? I think Iran's rela- uh, relationship with the Taliban, as you described, uh, has not been always friendly. Uh, in uh, 1994, when the Taliban took control of northern Afghanistan, they massacred uh, a lot of Shias and also killed 11 Iranians, journalists and, and diplomats. But then uh, very pragmatically, and, and you're right, Iran did support uh, the northern alliance very uh, closely, was very close to Shah Ahmad Massoud. In fact, uh, uh, the commander of the Quds Force, General Soleimani, was very involved in organizing and, and helping the northern alliance and, and working with them all the way to facilitating American rapport with the Northern Alliance when the Taliban were overthrown in 2001. But then the Iranians um, uh, also came to a conclusion at some point that the, that the Taliban could be back and they don't want to have the same kind of relationship that they had in the past. And so they began to build ties with elements of the Taliban. In fact, uh, part, uh, some members of the Taliban took their families from Pakistan to Iran. And uh, one leader of the Taliban, one successor to Mullah Omar, which was killed by an American drone, was driving back from Iran uh, where he was visiting his family. And so in areas of Afghanistan, like in Helmand province, uh, a lot of the Taliban factions had closer ties with IRGC than they had with Pakistani intelligence. Now, for for the Taliban... This was pragmatism. Uh, uh, in other words, yes, they're hardline Sunnis and they're anti-Shia, etc. But they needed Iranian support. Uh, uh, and your enemy's enemy is your friend. And Iran was anti-American, and so were the Taliban. And the Taliban didn't want to be didn't want to be hundred percent reliant on Pakistan, and they wanted that relationship. And the Iranians also similarly did not, uh, you know, understood that they don't want to have a Taliban that is controlled by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to be sitting on its border. Uh, so, but at the same time, the Iranians did not want a total Taliban victory in Afghanistan either. Uh, uh, you know, the Iran's foreign minister, uh, Zarif, before Doha agreement kept saying that um, uh, a Taliban victory in Kabul was not acceptable to Iran. But it then, but it then it happened. Now, I think even within the revolutionary guards, within the Iranian public, there is a lot of animosity towards the Taliban. They see him as hardline Sunnis. Uh, they see them as potentially allies of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Pakistan against Iran. 
and and their sympathies also are with the Panjshiri fighters, with the with the core of the Northern Alliance, uh, even within the Revolutionary Guards, because they have deep ties with them. Uh, but unlike the Iranian public, which is very openly anti-Taliban, the Iranian government doesn't feel like it can afford to be that that hostile to the Taliban. They are the government of a neighboring country. Secondly, the Iranians think that the best way of protecting the Shias in Afghanistan and, and preventing open massacre of the Shias is to have relations with the Taliban. And so, uh, so at the official level, Iran, you know, recognized the Taliban, you know, invited them to Tehran, kept its embassy open. Uh, it, it also wants to give the Taliban incentive to not, uh, you know, become too reliant on Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Uh, so Iran's following a very pragmatic policy. Uh, and, and then finally, the Iranians, I think, are interested in the Taliban succeeding. Now that they're in Kabul, you want them to succeed because the alternative to the Taliban is not some kind of a democratic or you know, stable Afghanistan, or let's say uh, it's going to be absolute chaos and civil war. And that's much more dangerous to Iran in terms of narcotics trade, in terms of terrorism, and in terms of also refugees. And so, and, and then I would have to, have to say that Iran is particularly worried about ISIS, Khorasan. I mean, after all, it's a group that uh, is very anti-Iran, very anti-Shia. The idea of a greater Khorasan, you know, is obviously inclusive of Iran as well. And so uh, uh, I think the Iranians, uh, uh, you know, have to hold their nose and work with the Taliban. They didn't have a choice in that victory. They have to deal with the result. And the best case scenario for them is stability in Afghanistan. And that has to right now be somehow managed through the Taliban. And um, talking about the Taliban, I finally want to know where you think Afghanistan is headed. Are these the same Taliban of the past or because there's this tendency for them to try to present themselves as a new Taliban that they have changed, they have evolved and reformed do you see them as a new Taliban, say Taliban 2.0, or do you think um, these are the same Taliban and the country's headed in the same direction as it was under their previous rule? I would say yes and no. And the best comparison is, is uh, are, are the Ayatollahs ruling Iran now the same Ayatollahs who took over in 1979? Again, the answer is yes and no. Uh, 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 so yes, ideologically, the Taliban are still, you know, holding to the same set of ideas. But uh, after 20 years of war, they have become more pragmatic. Uh, and this is very clear uh, in, in their decision-making, in the way they took over Kabul, in the way in which even they're enforcing their rules and laws, etc. Secondly, uh, you know, a lot of their leaders, uh, senior leaders, spent uh, exile in, sitting in Pakistan, in Iran, in Doha, uh, and 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 in the process, they um, they've 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 seen a different world than when they were, you know, village seminaries, uh, seminarians who uh, were organized into a fighting force uh, going from Peshawar to Kandahar, and this was the whole world that they knew. Uh, there is difference between uh, the leadership of the Taliban, who are older, more seasoned, and have traveled ab abroad. And the younger field commanders uh, who are, you know, much more sort of hardline and, and they're soldiers, let's say. 
the original Taliban who came in 1994 were, 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 were pretty much all of them were, were attached to hardcore seminaries in Pakistan. That's where they have been raised as orphans in societies that lacked women inside the seminaries that were all indoctrinated in seminaries. Now, a lot of Taliban commanders and soldiers are recruited locally. They're not coming from seminaries in Pakistan. They are small town villagers, et cetera, who grew up on the ground in Afghanistan. So they're not necessarily as black and white as the original ones were. Even if you look at the way the Taliban are dressed now, uh, you know, some of them wearing color and, uh, you know, when they were in, in, first arrived in Kabul, et cetera. So it's now, it's now a different kind of an organization. No, it's not liberal democratic. It's not reformed in the sense that they've sort of decided that they're going to change their ideas. So, so it's still the same Taliban, uh, you know, following the same kind of Islam that it did before to the extent that they are beholden to tribal you know, parochial views of society, Islam, role of women, they're still the same people. And a lot of them are villagers whose views on women are generally much more conservative than the middle class in Kabul. But are they more pragmatic? Absolutely. Even the negotiations with the U.S. showed they were much more pragmatic. And, and, and even the way they handled the agreement, the exit of the Americans from Kabul, even the way they worked at the airport, uh, the way they're dealing with Iran, for instance, or the way they're dealing with the Shias. There's no official you know, sanctions to massacre Shias because they are, they are Shia. So to that extent, they're more pragmatic. And finally, what gives you hope for the future of Afghanistan, for the people of Afghanistan, particularly this new generation, the youth that you talked about, the women of Afghanistan, and this newly formed middle class. What is it that looking into the future makes you hopeful? To be honest with you, I'm not. Uh, I'm not hopeful. I, I, I think it's a very dark period for that country. And, and the suffering of the people is, uh, is quite pronounced. I mean, the only hope that there could be is that maybe after an Iran nuclear deal and with attention being at, if there is a nuclear deal and with attention being on Russia, etc., that there might be a window in which there would be, you know, an agreement to allow more aid and more lifting of sanctions on to, to stabilize the economy somewhat more. But I just don't see a scenario in which, um, you know, you can reconstitute the middle class that was lost uh, after the American withdrawal in short order in Afghanistan and that the country is going to be go back to where it was. Uh, so, uh, yes, a lot of the poorest villagers may be able to go back home if the economy stabilizes. But, but the secretaries, translators, office workers, businessmen, journalists, professors, those people are not going to be going back anytime soon, not only because of the political climate, but also I don't think there is an economy for them to go back, to go back in the short run. Well, I wanted to end this on a positive note, but I guess there's not too much that we can be hopeful about, as you perfectly explained. Um, Vali, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast again. Thank you. That was Vali Naz, professor and former dean at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a former senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. 
And you can also support our work by subscribing to the podcast. Go to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and click on subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.